Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin that you use for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what, the, what God said to you. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How then is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, put my, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, 
And from that, that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Thank you, David, for leading the first part of the service for us today. It's very helpful. Nice to see you've got a nice, fresh haircut. Um, I need a nice, fresh haircut. I asked my wife if she'd do it on Wednesday, and we didn't have time. And I wanted it doing yesterday, and we didn't have time. So I woke up this morning, and I looked like Coco the Clown off the Simpsons. These bits were out here. This bit was up here, and there was not much in the middle. So I've had to sort of put a lot of gel on. So it's a lot longer than I want it to be. I always know when it sort of comes over my ears. And that, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's nearly, I, I could put it in my ears. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad. Because we're trying to get the house ready because it's going on the market this week and we're trying to you know, want it ready for photos and things. So things like haircuts just have to wait. So uh, it, at least one of us looked presentable this morning. Thank you. Thank you, David, for that. I do appreciate that. If you've got your Bibles and you want to turn to that passage that we've just had read to us, that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We do believe as a church that God speaks when we open up his word together, when we look at these passages and think uh, about what they mean. Um, I'm, I'm very confident and been praying that as I speak, I know that God is speaking into hearts and minds and lives. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it because, let's be honest, you don't really just want to listen to me. I haven't really got much wisdom, but the Word of God has got a lot of wisdom. And the Word of God impacts our lives. And, and that's, that's right here. And I wonder, I want to start with a couple of questions this morning. I wonder um, if you think that these verses that have just been read are relevant to you today. When we were sitting there and we was looking through, you know, your, your mind might have wondered, you know, you know, I know this bit, I've heard this one about taxes or, or marriage in heaven or whatever. Your mind might have sort of wondered, is it relevant for you today? When you wake up tomorrow morning and you've got to go to work or whatever it is that you're doing tomorrow, maybe down the shops or seeing friends or whatever it is, will this passage be helpful for you? Will it be helpful? Paying taxes to Caesar. Probably not. Marriage in heaven. Well, maybe one day I might think about that, but I mean, you know, it's not that relevant first thing on a Monday morning. The greatest command, hopefully. Some obscure text from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, oh, hold on, who's saying what to who? Does it feel relevant? Well, you know, context is incredibly important. What's going on here? It's been a few weeks since I've been able to speak. I was supposed to do this sermon three weeks ago, um, but COVID got hold of me and laid me low, and it was, I was struggling. I couldn't actually speak on that particular day. I couldn't speak the next week, and I couldn't speak properly last week. And you may still hear that I've got a little bit of a, of a struggle, but I'm, I'm just about there, I think. So we've been thinking about chapters 21 and 22. They're really all about, has Jesus got any authority? That's what they're about. So the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in and everyone's saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's an excitement. There's a sense of something's happening. We love it when something happens, don't we? The good things, of course. We love it. There's this sense that there's, there's movement. We're going forward. And then Jesus goes into the temple and he, and he, and he drives everybody out. He turns over the tables and he gets the animals out. And he says, what are you doing? This is not a place for this. This is a place for prayer. This is where people have an opportunity to meet with God. And then the Pharisees come up to him, the, the leaders effectively of the temple, the people that put these things together, and they, and, and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Chapter 
21, verse 23. By whose authority are you doing these things? So, we're still answering that question at the end of chapter 22. We're still thinking about that. It's about Jesus' authority. Let me ask you a second question. Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus Lord? Now that really is relevant tomorrow morning when you wake up. If he isn't, and you don't think he is, and you've ignored him, then you can just get on with your life. No problem whatsoever. But if actually you've come to that point when you think, yes, he's Lord, and he's my Lord, that will affect what you do tomorrow. It will. It affects your life. You take things like this greatest commandment seriously. You want to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. You're asking God for the strength to be able to do that. It has an impact. And I think, actually, that question is the biggest question that's faced, that we're faced with as humanity. Is Jesus Lord? And that's what's going on here in these verses. So suddenly, actually, they become very relevant, don't they? They become very relevant to our everyday lives. The Israelite leaders have had to face this question. They've asked Jesus, as I said, about his authority. They want to know, where does it come from? Why do you think you've got the right to do these things? What does Jesus do? Well, he tells them some parables. We thought about that a few weeks ago. He tells them a parable about a father who's got two sons. He tells them a parable about a vineyard owner with tenants. He tells them a parable about a king inviting people to a wedding. All authority figures. So Jesus is helping them to see that he does have God's authority. The leaders didn't like the parables. They understood them. And they knew they were about them. And we said at the time, if you remember, there was a parable in the Old Testament told by Nathan the prophet to King David. And it, it undid David. He knew it was about him. And he said straight away, I'm sorry, Lord. I've done wrong. And he repented of his sin. He turned away from his sin. So Jesus uses the same tactic here. He tells them these parables to help them to understand and grasp, to get underneath their skin. But they don't repent. They reject Jesus. They say, I don't like the fact that you might have authority over me. And they reject him. Now, in the verses before us today, they're confirming their rejection. They're showing how far they will go to reject him. The lengths that they will go to. And there, there's just two points this morning. Um, the first one that's going to help us through the passage is we see that they try and trap Jesus. They've rejected him and now they want to discredit him. They try and trap him. That's the first thing. The second point is that Jesus challenges them. They try and trap Jesus and then Jesus challenges them. And that's what's going on. So we we're sort of fall into the middle of a of a section of what's going on. But it's about authority. It's about whether Jesus is Lord. He's still answering this question. He's still, in a sense, really, I think, trying to help the Pharisees to understand when we get to the next part, which was going to be next week, but now is going to be the week after, probably. Things are changing around a little bit. We'll see that Jesus starts to um, help them to see where the issue is, where the problem is. But for here, I think he's trying to help them. So the first point... 
uh, is trapping, well, thank you, we just got rid of it in time, just, just missed that, it was a, trapping Jesus. First point, trapping Jesus. One of the problems that these leaders have with Jesus is that the crowds of people love him. They like him. He's popular. He's somebody that draws people to himself. He's one of those people that when he's in town, people want to be there. You know the story of Zacchaeus? I love that story. What does Zacchaeus do? He's a grown man. He may have been my age. And he climbs a tree. <laughs> I mean, what? who climbs a tree? Unless you were your kids. Somebody who wants to see Jesus. Jesus has this, this sense of um, presence about him that people want to see him. They want to find out more about him. And the people love him. So they're thinking, well, how do we discredit him? Well, let's ask him a question about tax. I mean, we all love to talk about tax, don't we? Has anyone ever said, I love paying taxes? No. I mean, it's still relevant for us today, isn't it? You know, the national insurance is going up to pay for all that's happened during the COVID, and people say, no, no, that's not fair, because on top of everything else that's going on, no, we don't want to pay any more tax. People don't want to pay taxes. Why did Zacchaeus have to climb the tree? Because he couldn't get to the front of the crowd, because he was a tax collector, so everyone was like that when they saw him come anywhere near him. They're like... Get out of it. You're not having my space, little man. Go away. So he has to climb a tree. He was a tax collector. In Israel, it was even worse. I mean, you see here, there's a little note in my Bible. I don't know if you've got it in yours. It says there's a little A above it. It says, is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? If you go to the bottom of the page, it says, the poll tax was a special tax levied on subject peoples, not on Roman citizens. So effectively, they're paying it because they and not Roman citizens. I mean, yeah, you for that one. <laughs> That'd give you something to grumble about, wouldn't it? Do they do it? Now, of course, you know, if you go around saying, don't pay it, don't pay the poll tax, don't pay it to Caesar, don't give him it, then you're going to be seen as an upstart, aren't you? So, they think there's a trap here. We can trap Jesus. The trap is set. What does Jesus do? Will he alienate the crowd by saying, well, yes, of course you should pay the tax. Or will he alienate the Romans and put himself in a precarious position by saying, no, don't pay that, it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's worth remembering, this isn't a quick little quiet chat down the pub. You know, this isn't having somebody over for dinner and talking about whether you should pay tax or not. This is a bit like a journalist interviewing a celebrity in front of the camera. And they're trying to trick them out. They're trying to trip them up. Remember Glenn Hoddle, the England manager, who, who had to leave his job because of what he said about um, disabled people. You remember that? You know, I saw a clip afterwards, and it said the journalist said, "I knew I'd struck gold." And I just thought, you know, you've just wrecked some guy's career. And he loved the fact that he'd been able to trap him. So what's going on here? They're trying to trap him. What does Jesus do? Well, he's frustrated, we see, verse 18. Not for himself, but because of their evil intent. He calls them out, which, you know, I'm sure made no difference to them whatsoever. But he says, you're trying to trap me. So he shows them straight away. Because, what have they done? Have you, I don't know if you noticed this, verse 16 onwards, they try and butter him up, they try and flatter him, they try and sort of get him on side, the teacher. We know that you're a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. And Jesus is supposed to be sat there thinking, mm, yeah, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to put it like that. But he doesn't. He's not drawn in, is he? You know, we know all these things. How is it? Is it right to pay the tax? Where does that come from? I thought he was my friend. I thought, I thought he was being nice to me. No. You know, it's really sad, this bit, isn't it, I think? The more I read this, the, the sadness that, that I feel at this. He is a man of integrity. He is. He does teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. He isn't swayed by others in his sense of identity. And you know, to say these words, tongue-in-cheek, in a way that they really do know the truth of them, but won't accept the truth of them, shows incredibly hard hearts from these people. It shows a desperation to hold on to power, that they will use what they know is true as a way to try and trap him. This is not just normal people rejecting Jesus. This is people who know that they're going to have to sacrifice a great deal if this guy really has got authority. You know, some people can be so objectionable when you start to talk to them about Jesus and suddenly you think, there's something deeper going on here. This isn't just a normal conversation. Something's happened here for them. And we need to be aware of that sometimes. So Jesus recognizes the trap. And, you know, recognize it can be helpful, but it still doesn't offer you a way out, does it? So this man of integrity that teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth says one of the best lines in Scripture, <laughs> show me a coin. Show me a coin. It's brilliant, isn't it? He has a look at it. And he says, look, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. He avoids the trap. And the best thing about this whole little section is that little bit at the end. What's the response of the people? They are amazed. Oh! Yeah. The Pharisees' disciples are like, Rush! that's blown up in our faces. He's supposed to be discredited. They are amazed at Jesus. Because he's got authority. Supposed to be doubting him. They're supposed to be thinking, oh, I'm not sure this guy is who he says he is. They're amazed. The second trap, things will get a bit quicker. We, don't, we, we haven't got time just to go into everything in great detail because we're trying to cover quite a bit. The second trap, we're not told it's a trap. It's the Sadducees. I love the little play on words. You know, the Sadducees never believed in the resurrection because they're sad, you see. <laughs> it always helps us remember, doesn't it? They're sad, you see. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They're sad, you see. Helpful. Here, Jesus shows us they're in error because of the way that they're reading the scriptures. There's a phrase in theology, which has always stuck with me. I came across it at Bible College. And it's always stuck. It's called over-realized eschatology. I know you all know what it means, so I don't have to go into uh, explaining it. But basically, what it means is, um, what, you know, people take what is promised in the next life, in the new creation, in heaven, and think that we can claim it now. It's the problem, I think, that the prosperity gospel of God, claiming things now that actually, uh, you know, Jesus came to give us a picture of heaven, 
and what it will be like when he walks around and all the things that he's doing. We know from the beginning of the gospel, heaven was torn open. He, he came down. He's, it's heaven on earth when Jesus is walking around and engaging with people and doing things. And sometimes we can get things wrong because we think, you know, God needs to do this now. And the promise is that we will live that perfect life, but it won't be until the new creation. But the Sadducees have got the opposite problem of that. They're thinking in terms of this creation, of what they know, and then they're applying it to the new creation, to the time of the resurrection. And we see that, don't we? This woman, her husband, in the end she has seven husbands, whose wife will she be? And Jesus puts them right and shows that they're, they're misunderstanding the scriptures because God is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. So when he mentions people who have died, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying you haven't understood that they're alive with God. There is a resurrection. It's not going to be long now until he proves it. And again, we know, verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, it's not going very well, is it? These people that are trying to discredit Jesus, trying to show that he doesn't have any authority, leave the crowd continually being astonished, amazed at who he is. But, they're suckers for punishment. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Let's just take stock a minute. Verse 15. We've got the Pharisees, disciples, and the Herodians to go and talk about taxes. Verse 23. We have the Sadducees to ask him this question on theology. And now we've got the Pharisees themselves. And it does feel a bit like, you know, if you want a job doing, do it yourself. If you want a job doing properly, do it yourself. They've sent these other people and they've come back nothing. You know, they're amazed at Jesus. So off they go. They want to trip him up on a question of the law. So again, verse 35, they tested him with a question. So three tests. One that is practical, involves everyday life things, paying taxes. Normal people are bothered about that. They want to talk about those sort of things. One that talks about theology. And one that talks about the law. But again, we see that Jesus comes through with flying colours. David very helpfully showed us where those verses are in the Old Testament this morning, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. And what's happening here is we, we really, these passages, it's really exposed in the human problem. What is the human problem? We don't want Jesus to be from God. We don't want Jesus to have any authority. We don't want Jesus to be Lord because if he is, that means I can't be. That's the human problem. And if he is Lord, then we need to change. You know, when we start to see who he is, when the fog starts to clear, and this happens, you know, we see it with, with people. When you're talking to people about these important things, they start to think about Jesus happened to me. The fog starts to clear and I start to think, oh no, I think they might be true. I think Jesus might be important. I think he might have died for me. Oh no. There's two responses, effectively. 
there's rejection. You know, get the fog back. I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm off. Or there's repentance. Wow, this guy is incredible. I need to turn to him. I need to give him my life. And the leaders here have chosen rejection. The first one. So I'm looking through this, and I'm thinking about this. We've seen these traps that they're trying to set for him. And I've always thought this is a bit like a boxing match. You know, the Pharisees, disciples, and the Herodians, <coughs> Jesus. The Sadducees, <coughs> Jesus. The Pharisees, <coughs> Jesus. And then, Jesus. <coughs> but I don't, don't feel right, does it? <laughs> does that feel right to you? Jesus got a sucker punch. Hey, come on. Sucker. <coughs> don't feel right. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's happening here is that the second point, Jesus challenges them. It'll get there in a minute. Thank you. Jesus challenges them. Is I think he's still actually being very gracious towards them. He's helping them to see. He's, ta- he's, he's taking them on in theology. They're on his ground now. I mean, let's, it's Jesus. They were never not on his ground. Take him on anything... He's going to win because he's, he's, he's got the knowledge. He knows. He is Lord. But they're on his ground in the sense of this theology. I, I remember one of our Bible lecturers at college very honestly sharing at the time that he, he, he loved being in a room with theologians. Put your hand up if that would be you. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Probably not many people in this room, I guess. You know, I, I, I struggle a bit, if, if I'm honest. But he, he loved being in a room with theologians. He loved being with them, debating with them, he knew his scriptures, he knew where the scriptures led to, you know, he absolutely loved it, and he shared, very honestly, he said, I'd rather be in a room with theologians than I would be with non-Christians. Because he, he knew that they, you know, the level you could talk at, the engagement of the scriptures, when, you know, you've got people who don't really know if the Bible's true, he, he, he's like, well, no, of course it is. Theology. Often seen, isn't it, as the stuff that pits people against each other today. Theology. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure as I like theology. Often leads to disagreement. Well, actually, theology well done is just a deep, enriching soul experience, feeling experience. It really is. Good theology helps you understand more about who God is and what he's like. And that's a wonderful thing. Theology actually is a great thing which leads to a deeper understanding of God. It's not about winning arguments. It's about truth and deepening relationships. So the people that have come to him with a question about the law, what's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus says, okay, this this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, you know, let's, let's think a little bit more then. If you're going to engage with me in theology, let's think a little bit more. And what is the problem that the people of this day have? What's the problem that the people that Jesus is talking to have? That these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these Herodians, that whoever they are, the religious people of the day, the problem that they face is this. They cannot conceive that it would be possible in any way that God could take some sort of human form and stand among them as a person. Can they? I mean, it's quite hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? 
They, they can't grasp that that may be a possibility. And yet what's happening? Jesus, who we know now, as we've understood from the scriptures, is both fully man and fully God. He's standing there before them. He really does have the authority. He really is Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. And he's trying to help them to understand that. Now Jesus never shouts about this. He never goes around saying, I'm God, you need to follow me. Never. Never. Because he knows it will be completely and utterly misunderstood. Jesus very slowly but very surely reveals his identity act after act after act through healing miracles. There's a session in Christianity Explored when we think about his authority as authority to teach. He has authority over sin. He has authority over evil. He has authority over sickness. And he has authority over death. Very clearly at the beginning of Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel as well, we're helping to see these things. Where he has the authority. How he's able to use that authority. And now he's engaging theologically with these people who have asked him a theological question. These people were, were used to looking in the Old Testament, to thinking about who the Messiah would be, about how he was going to come, and what he would do. We think about those questions, don't we, at Christmas time. We think about some of those passages. We have them read out in the carol service and different things like that. They're very important in helping us to understand. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're pouring over who, what, where, when, how. And Jesus here takes a passage that makes them think. Remember, we're talking about his authority. And the question is, why does David call him Lord? Why does David call him Lord? And we know Jesus is Lord if we've understood his credentials from the beginning of the gospel and what he goes on to do. And the reality, I think, is this, that, that they're happy these people, for him to be the son of David. They're happy for that. But the problem is that's never going to be enough. He has to be much more than just the son of David. Because he's come to do more than David could ever do. So Jesus asked, verse 42, whose son is the Messiah? The Messiah, whose son is he? He is the son of David. That's very important. Matthew shows that right at the beginning of his gospel. He lays out his lineage. But he's much more than that. This verse in Psalm 110 shows he's not just the son of David. He, what's his self-designated title? Son of man, isn't it? As he walks around. The son of man this, the son of man that, as he's teaching his disciples. He's the son of David. He's the son of man. But he is Lord, and he has this authority because he is the Son of God. That's what he's helping them to understand and see. And it's there in the Old Testament. Their understanding of what the Messiah will do is just too narrow. They want somebody like David. They want someone to get rid of the Romans. Imagine if that had happened 2,000 years ago. Would we still be talking about Jesus now? No. That's not what Jesus was ever intending to do. They're happy to go back to the glory days of David in Israel's history. They want that reclaiming. But they need to be going further back 
and thinking about where it all went wrong. And it all went wrong with Adam. The very first man. That's where it went wrong. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans, that Jesus is the second Adam. This is the one that Genesis 3.15 was we're told will crush evil. There was evil in the Garden of Eden in the form of the serpent, the snake. The devil was there. And he will be crushed one day. Jesus has come to do that. Not to get rid of the Romans. That's tiny in comparison. Jesus has come to open up the way to God that was lost in the Garden thousands of years before. He says, doesn't he, in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. He's more powerful than David. And David, speaking by the Spirit, realized something more was needed. We know now the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the pages and pages that you can read about, the sacrifices, different sacrifices, different things, all pointed towards one sacrifice of this man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus. Why? To mend the rift between humanity and God, between us and God. Something went wrong years and years and years ago. And this week's news just confirms that it's still wrong, doesn't it? Things that we've seen this week. Jesus has come to mend that rift and find a way for us to be forgiven. Is this passage helpful for you at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning or 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 11 o'clock? I don't know what time you get up. Is this passage relevant for you tomorrow morning? Well, you know, if you've repented and you know that Jesus is Lord, it really is. Because it gives you confidence. You can know that Jesus has authority. He's not only shown that he's got authority, but when he's been challenged in different areas, he's able to stand and show why he has authority. If we are those who know Jesus, we can be encouraged by these verses. And if we're those who don't know Jesus, we can be challenged by these verses. As I said earlier, there's, there's two ways to think about Jesus' authority. You can reject it. That's completely up to you. You can say, no, I don't want to believe that, and I don't want anything to do with that. That's what these people are doing here. And you can reject Jesus' authority. But if the fog starts to clear, if you start to understand and see, I would say to you, it's worth thinking a little bit more about who he is. Before you reject him, why don't you find out a bit more about what he says and who he is, what his claims are. And that could lead ultimately to repentance. To a point when you say, yeah, I know that Jesus is Lord. I've got to stop living my life for myself. I've got to give it over to him. And I've got to ask him to forgive me for all the things that I've done wrong. Say that I'm sorry for my sin, for the things that I've done that have upset God in the way that I've lived. And he's standing there with open arms, wanting to offer forgiveness to you. Two ways. We can reject, or we can think about who he is that may ultimately lead to repentance. For those of us who have repented, 
what do we do? We get up tomorrow, we think, I'm going to do, do my job well today. I'm going to look to, love, to love God in all the things that I do. I'm going to pay my taxes. <laughs> and you know what? We can do that thankfully. But also, we can give to Caesar in a sense what is Caesar's. But we also know there's more, don't we? We've got to give to God what is God's. And when we've repented and we've understood and know what that means, that Jesus is Lord, that is connected us to our Heavenly Father, we know that we give God everything. It's all His. Our lives are His. We want to be used in His service and for His glory. You know, Jesus being Lord is, is great news. Not for our sinful nature. It's bad news for our sinful nature, which wants to be left alone and run its own little kingdom within our lives. But it's great news that we can ignore that sinful nature. We can overcome it, because we can actually be part of the kingdom of God, which is so much bigger. And we can be under God's good rule. And we live with him as king. He will give us the strength and the wisdom to be able to live the lives that he wants us to live. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> I'm not saying that he, just, he just lays out the path and off you go. It's tough, it's challenging, but, but he's with us every step of the way. Every decision we need to make, we can pray, we can bring it before him. What will tomorrow morning look like for you? Because I think, you know what? If you know Jesus is Lord, it's going to look completely different to somebody who doesn't. It should do. Because you're a child of the king, you're under his rule, under his kingship, and you want to love him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and your neighbour as yourself.